apologies to the visitors from Houston and afterwards. Uh, <laughs> the Texans, but uh, very privileged to be here. Delighted to. Uh, oh, hi there. Yeah, sorry. Not only from Houston, but from first class Houston. Sorry. <laughs> hey, yeah. If you've heard this before, don't tell anyone. So, uh, anyway, what a great privilege to, uh, to be here. Uh, congratulations on your. Back before there was color television, I was a youth pastor, and uh, I can remember taking a bunch of kids out of house boats for those guys. So, so, pleasure to see you all, and turn on your microphone. Public speaking 101. Thank you. And yes, it is, uh, you know, I, this church, uh, I have been aware of this church and admired this church for years and years, not necessarily just because of where it is, but because of the, uh, the rich legacy that this church has in uh, mission and ministry. And uh, uh, when I was serving churches in, in California, we were well aware of uh, what a vibrant uh, lighthouse for the Lord this church is in the community. So it's a great privilege to be here. I'm delighted to be able to uh, help out Tim as he is uh, taking some space to finish his uh, doctor of ministry. So you might wonder... By the way, how it is that we guest preachers figure out what it is that we're going to preach, right, when we're, when we're doing this. And uh, you might think it's just, well, you know, pick something, one of your favorites out of the dustbin or the, uh, the uh, or Tim saying, Jim, whatever you preach on, preach twice on tithing and sacrificial giving, right? <laughs> but uh, actually, what, what I wanted to do is, was uh, share some thoughts around your mission statement. I spent some time looking at your... Uh, uh, website and uh, learning a little bit about your mission and vision for ministry, and uh, it aligned with some things that I have uh, studied and taught out of the book of Acts. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, um, the gospel according to Ananias. And if you uh, would turn in your Bibles to chapter 9, um, we're going to take a look at uh, the first 19 verses. And I think that it is... Uh, do you do it in the contemporary service as well? Okay, so I know it's your tradition here to stand for the reading of the Word of God, so would you please do that? And Lord, I simply pray that uh, as we gather around your Word this morning, that you would be the one to speak to us. For those that need a word of comfort in this difficult day, uh, would you be their comfort? For those that need to be reminded of your presence uh, on this day, would you remind them of your presence? For those who need a word of challenge, um, would you speak that challenge, Lord, through your word? Meet us uh, in this place this morning that we might hear from you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So meanwhile, yeah, you may, you may be seated. <laughs> no, let's all stand. Sorry. I, I'm with you guys. We don't do this at First Press Houston, so I was... We'll stand for the reading of the whole word of God. <laughs> Meanwhile, it says, Saul, who we'll talk about, uh, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what the early way they referred to Christians, um, if he found any way that, that uh, anybody who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. 
And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore him sight. Catch verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, what Ananias is saying is what? Are you kidding? You want me to go to this guy, right? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. So what I have always loved about the book of Acts is that it's a history. It's an epic history of ordinary people who do extraordinary things by partnering with a living God. Now, on one dimension, the book of Acts is God's story, right? We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through people and events to establish God's kingdom on earth. But on another whole dimension, it's a a book about ordinary people like you and me. Ordinary people have no idea that they are part of this larger narrative. They're just responding faithfully in the moment, and they're unaware at that moment that God is actually using them for something larger, that God is going to use them to change the world. So let's take a look at this story. The meanwhile in verse 1 obviously refers back to something that took place in the chapters before chapter 9. And I'm not going to go through them all, but basically what it's referring to is a young man by the name of Stephen, who was um, basically the first man we know of, anyway, to lose his, his life because of his faith in Jesus Christ. 
And in losing his life, he proclaimed this, he preached this incredible sermon. Um, and then at the end, as they were about ready to kill him, he said, Lord, would you forgive them for what they're doing? And uh, so it says, meanwhile, back as a result of that, okay, the leadership, the Sanhedrin, the, the leadership of the Jewish people at that time in Jerusalem were concerned about this, Jew, this Jesus movement, this way. And so they moved at that time to destroy the church, to see what they could do to get rid of the church. And they appointed Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, the apostle, to do the work. And in his own words, he says, he went from house to house, arresting men and women and giving them over either to be put in jail or to actually be put to death. And I'll never forget uh, one thing that you might want to know about me is I came to faith later in life. I came to faith as a young, young guy of uh, 28, 29. And uh, I remember the first time I read this. And I remember thinking, this is the guy? <laughs> this is the guy that the Lord raised up to proclaim the gospel, to carry the gospel to his generation and to all generations to come, even down to us? And that gives us kind of our first lesson this morning, which is it's a perfect example of the idea that nobody lives outside of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody lives outside of God's love through the grace of Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've failed to do, no matter the shame you carry, no matter how confused you might be or how much you might think your life at the moment is messed up, or on the other hand, how successful you may be and feel as though you've got it all together, no matter how angry or disappointed you might be about the circumstances of your life, no one... No one is beyond the love of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we are forgiven. And I know you know that, but we all need to be reminded of this, right, on a daily basis. Martin Luther used to say we are to preach the gospel to ourselves every day that we might be reminded that it is by grace we have been saved, that we have been forgiven, that by his love we are healed of the wounds that we carry, that we've been set free of the slavery of living for ourselves, of the fears we carry as a result of that, the anger and the habits and all of the things that, that make our life difficult. First lesson, maybe the most important lesson for some of you today, no one is beyond the love of God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second lesson here as we turn it around that while none of us is outside of the grace of God, all of us must at some time in our lives surrender to it. Whether, whether your conversion is like Paul's <laughs> or mine, which is fairly dramatic with Christ interceding in your life, or whether you're more like my wife Marta who grew up uh, in the faith, can, can honestly say that there was never a day in her life that she didn't know the love of Jesus Christ. 
Whether you have Marta's story or whether you have my story or Paul's story, every one of us has to at some point open our hands and surrender to this love that comes to us. And here's a, a simple spiritual truth. We cannot receive the life that Jesus promises can be ours, right? He said he came to to offer us abundant life in John 10. We cannot receive that life if we're holding on to something else. I'm I'm not just talking about material things or about success in life. I'm talking about whatever we're holding on that is keeping us from receiving the abundant life. Let me give you some examples. For Paul, we don't know this for certain, but for Paul, it could have been his own zealousness for the Jewish faith, right? For the traditions that he was raised in. It was blocking him from being able to know God because he was so busy serving God. That's a trap that pastors fall into often and and people who are serving in the church. What about us? Well, maybe, maybe we're just so angry with God that that's what's in our fist. Or maybe we're carrying a deep wound, but a betrayal from someone close to us. Or maybe there's a bitterness about a dream that, that was unfulfilled. Or maybe it's something positive. Maybe it's the love of a child that is the most important thing in our lives or the love of a, of a grandchild. Maybe it's just simply our desire to be comfortable. The truth of the matter is that whatever is in this fist is actually the thing that is at the center of our lives. And as long as this thing is at the center of our lives, we're going to constantly be hearing Christ say, would you open those fists that I may give you what you desire? This abundant life, right? Of of joy even in difficult times. Not happiness, but joy, confidence, trust in the Lord. But we have to surrender. Now, when I use the word surrender, we immediately go to this idea of capitulation to a hostile force, right? That's how we're used to hearing the word surrender. But really what I'm talking about is the the surrender to grace, right? A surrender to love. Think about a time that you've fallen in love, how that essentially is a form of surrender. I surrendered to Marta 40, well, a long time ago. We'll just leave it. (laughs) We have uh, four grandchildren, and they're a great joy in our lives, Uh, but they all live on the East Coast, which is kind of a bummer. And so, uh, like many, uh, we were not able to see them during the, the pandemic. And, uh, but eventually we were able to, and so eventually Marta is able to go out and uh, see our little granddaughter, uh, Ava, and her, uh, her brother, Jackson. And uh, when Marta walks in the door, right, and we know that Ava has great love for Marta, but when Marta walked in the door because she hadn't seen her in, in, what, a year and a half, something like that, Ava hid behind her mom. She was, was like, who is this? Can I trust you? But Marta just kind of got down on her level and just kind of sat there and, and loved her and eventually, you know, the step out and then eventually the run to be with her and, and Marta and Ava were inseparable for the time that they were together. 
sending all kinds of pictures back to me saying, see, ha, 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 I'm here with your grandchildren and you're, you're in Houston where it's 145 degrees. And even as I tell that story, I'm reminded of another story, one of my favorite stories of all time, and it's about Ava's mother, Emily, who was actually married at Mission Ranch uh, about seven years ago. And uh, anyway, Emily, when she was young, you know, four years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, five years old, she loved to play hide-and-seek, loved to play hide-and-seek. The problem was Emily was a terrible hide-and-seeker. She... You know, first of all, she would hide in ridiculously stupid places like behind a chair or something like that. But then the times that she did hide somewhere somewhat clever, it only took you could be 10 feet away from her and you'd begin to hear the giggles, right? And you'd begin to hear the, the laughter and pretty soon you'd begin to, to hear the shuffling and, and then out she'd come, right? And she'd run up and she'd jump in my arms. And I would say, Emily, the whole point of hide and seek is to stay hidden. And one day she said to me, but daddy, I just love to be found. And so that's what Jesus is saying to us. We who work so hard to earn his favor, he said, I've already given it to you. We, are, who, we who are so hard on ourselves because we feel like we're a disappointment to God, he says, I already take great delight in you. We who say we're seeking God, God is saying, I'm seeking you. And all I want you to do is allow yourself to be found. So the first lesson I want us to take from this text is that no one exists outside of the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ. The second lesson that I want us to take out of this is we're all invited to surrender Right, to open our hands that we might receive the life and the blessing that Christ wants to give us. The third lesson is, uh, is a little bit more subtle. subtle. It's just this idea that uh, Paul's story reminds us that we're participating in something so much larger than ourselves, right? I'm just like you. I live with myself as the center of the universe, and um, it's good to be reminded from time to time, right? Our story is a part of God's story. And that the, the more we can find ourselves in God's story, actually, the more we find the life that Christ wants to give us. Now, if we had the time to, to do a full-on Bible study of this whole thing, we could go to Acts 22 or Acts 26 and discover that the same story is being told by Luke, but this time in Paul's own words, right? And one of the things that he says in chapter 26 is he gives some evidence that Jesus was at work in his life well before he had this dramatic encounter on Lake Shasta in the houseboat, right? Now, I'm kidding, but those of us that have had an encounter with Christ, one of the things I want us to listen for is how Christ is actually, was actually at work before we had that encounter as evidence of his love. In Acts 26, 14, in Paul's testimony, he says that, that Jesus said to him, why are you kicking against the goads, right? And you have to be from Texas to understand what a goad is, right? Well, actually, you don't. But the, uh, as a Texan, 
Um, I can tell you that a goad is a long rod or a pointed stick that's used to prod livestock, right, to move them forward. And um, so uh, to kick against the goads or to resist the goads, right, is to resist this motion of Christ moving us forward in life, right? So Jesus says to Paul, why are you resisting me? Well, what did that look like? We don't know for sure. Paul would have been in Jerusalem at the same time of Christ. It's not mentioned in Scripture at all, so I have to be careful here, but it, would, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a huge leap to assume that Paul, if he hadn't heard Jesus teach directly, would have at least heard about the teaching of this guy, right? I mean, that's what the whole movement against, of the, against the church was all about. He certainly would have heard about, if he didn't witness, the claims of the resurrection, right? That's what, why he was moving against the church. He would have remembered the preaching of Stephen, because if you go back and read that story, you know that Paul was standing there when Stephen lost his life. And he would have heard Stephen's sermon, which is about the idea that, the, that God's love is not contained in a building or in a tradition. He would have heard the amazing words of forgiveness that, the, that, that Stephen gave to those who were literally taking his life. All of those goats were at work at Paul. Paul was a moral man, a zealous man. He was a man who gave his whole life to seeking to bless God. Now suddenly he's confronted with the, the reality that God has come to bless him. The whole story has been turned upside down. And he's overwhelmed by grace. And now he gets it. Now he gets that it's not about what he can do to bless God, but how God has blessed him. And now Paul goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit and begins to change the world. So what about us? What are some of the goads <laughs> that uh, might be poking into your life, either goads in the past or goads in the, the present moment. Who are the people that are responsible for you being here today? Right? Um, think about that. I, had a, uh, I have had the pleasure for the last five years of, of walking alongside a, a young man who was raised in the Hindu tradition. And uh, he eventually, after several years, gave his life to Christ and so then I had the privilege of uh, discipling him and, and walking through, um, walking with him as he, be, you know, came to a deeper understanding of his faith. And over this time, I've heard him tell his story about all the goads that work in his life until finally he had this moment where the, the light bulb went on and he got it. He said, I, I went, I was a Hindu, but I went to a Christian school. He said, then um, I was a... Uh, uh, I was an addict, <laughs> and uh, I did studies in, the, in Alcoholics Anonymous, the, what they call the big book, right? Which, if you know anything about AA, um, it's all about Christian principles. He said, then I met him because he was coming to church for the reason a lot of men go to church, which was to try to impress a young woman. And he said, he said Jim, I just felt like all these things were drawing me to the conversation that we eventually had. And, and the conversation that we still have. The goads at work in our life. What are the goads that have been at work in your life? 
No one is outside of the loving grace of God. We're all going to need to surrender. And one of the ways that we can, can come to surrender is to realize how God has been at work in our lives even before we knew that God was around. Final lesson. Last lesson. Every Paul needs an Ananias. Every Paul needs an Ananias. Here's what I mean. Every new follower of Christ needs someone, right? Let me back, let me rewind that tape. Every follower of Christ, but every new follower of Christ needs someone in their lives to practice radical hospitality, radical love, like Ananias. Do you think Ananias wanted to walk into that house that day? Yet out of his own faith, he was willing to do so. Every new follower of Christ needs someone willing to risk their time or their comfort, maybe their reputation or their lives to welcome the new believer in and to communicate to them what we've just been talking about. Can you imagine the power that took place when Ananias put his hands on Paul and said, welcome, brother We all need that. We all need that personal invitation into the life of the church. And it's important for us to realize, it's important for us to realize that when we say no one stands outside the grace of God, we first hear that as it applies to us, right? But we also need to be willing to look at how it applies to others. When I see out into others and look at them, am I reminding myself or allowing the Holy Spirit to remind myself no one is outside of the grace of God, regardless of how they behave, regardless of how they dress, regardless of of whatever it is. That's God's call on us to look out into the lives of others and be reminded that they don't stand outside of the love of Christ either. Christ sees something in everyone who comes to faith. Christ sees something in everyone who is seeking faith. Christ sees something in everyone who is needing faith. We're all chosen to play a role in God's work, and you have been chosen as well. Maybe you're not going to be called to be a Saul of Tarsus or an Apostle Paul. But maybe you'll be called to be the witness to the next Saul or Paul. Tim Keller, you guys heard of Tim Keller, preacher out in New York? He writes very movingly about the fact that he grew up in the church, and, uh, but that he spent his years in college with deep doubts, struggling about his faith. And it was his ability to look at the people around him, to lean on their faith, to allow them to encourage him in his faith that allowed him to move forward to be, in my opinion, the voice of our generation on behalf of the Christian faith. So think about Tim Keller's impact. And then think about the nameless people in that Methodist church back in West Virginia or whatever it was that simply encouraged the faith of Tim Keller. 
had a young woman come up to me uh, at our church several months ago. And she said, I, I'm new in my faith, and, and I just wanted to tell you why I chose this church to be the church that I'm going to try to, to grow and mature in my faith in. And I said, yeah, I'd love to hear, thinking it'd be the preacher, right? You know, that's... And uh, she said, I was in the, in the worship... I'm kidding. She was in the worship service the other day, she said, or, you know, a week or so ago, she said. And I was sitting by myself. She said, a family, a very boisterous family, you know, a, a husband and wife and I think three kind of adult daughters were all sitting together in the, in the pews right in front of me. And when we were, we exchanged the peace, uh, you know, we passed the peace at, at a certain time in the service. And when we were doing that in the service, she said, they looked at me and they said, oh, you're sitting alone. Why don't you come up and sit with us? And she said, okay. And, you know, introduced her to all the members of the family. And then you know what they did? They took her out to lunch. And she said, if, if your church is like those people, I want to learn more about this church, and I believe this church can teach me more about Jesus. And the reason I tell that story is how do we know that young woman isn't going to be the next Tim Keller? Right? How do we know that the next Tim Keller isn't sitting out here waiting for someone to put their hand on their shoulder and say, welcome, brother or sister. Friends, I'll close with these words. We have been found and chosen and equipped for so much more than just settling for coming to church. We have been invited into this incredible story that God is writing every single day. We have been equipped to be the church. That's what we say in, in First Press Houston. You don't go to church, you are the church. I should have given a quiz to the First Press people in here today. Or to put it in your context, we are here to connect people to Jesus through small acts of great love. I love your mission statement, and I pray that you will have the faith of an Ananias to live into that mission statement for the sake of Carmel and the sake of the world. Would you join me in prayer? So, Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the stories of your saints, for they are our stories. And they speak to us today as powerfully as they spoke 2,000 years ago. Lord, remind anyone here today who needs to hear this word that they do not stand outside of your grace and your love. Remind those of us today who need to hear your word that the life that you promise us, the abundance, the confidence, the joy, even in hard times, comes as we're willing to let go of some things that we might receive what you want to give. Help us to be the encouragers who speak into the lives of others. That we may be the church, whether we are in Carmel or Houston or wherever, that we would be the church that you have called us to be. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.